the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, turns out when the Wasatch Range sneezes, it has to throw Salt Lake City over its left shoulder. Magic Axe throwing actuarial rate quotes from an interdimensional insurance agent, plus a special presentation of a short story by DJ Butler this time on the podcast. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We talk with Larry Correa about his great short story collection, Target Rich Environment, Volume 2 this time. This is Part 2 of our two-part interview with Larry. Larry recounts the origins of all the stories and expounds on the most entertaining details of these uh, great tales in his great collection. So that's coming up. And this time, we take a break from Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. We'll get back to that next week and bring you a special audio treat this time. Debuting for the first time anywhere, this podcast is a short story in audio form from DJ Butler. That story is called The Seven Nipples of Molly Kitchen. It is set in the world of gritty Dust Bowl magic that Dave Butler and Aaron Michael Ritchie created for their novel The Cunning Man and some other stories they've written in that universe out from Bain and the upcoming sequel to that book, which we'll be putting out. Now, here's the news. The new hardcovers and trade paperbacks for January are at booksellers everywhere. First up is Gunpowder and Embers by John Ringo, Casey Ezel, and Christopher L. Smith. Thirty years ago, the world ended. Now, thirty years later, humanity has rebuilt, to an extent. Without electricity, human ingenuity has provided some creative solutions. Into this world come a lifelong cowboy, a mystic warrior monk, a beautiful dragon tamer, a runaway cultist, and a mysterious drunken lecher, all searching for the key to reclaiming humanity's future. Also out in January is Penrick's Progress by Lois McMaster Bujold. Introducing a new fantasy hero from Grandmaster Lois McMaster Bujold, follow Penrick on his journey from the noble young lord to sorcerer and scholar of the Bastard's Order. This volume contains Penrick's Demon, Penrick and the Shaman, and Penrick's Fox, three novellas. It's a collection of these great novellas of Penrick by Grandmaster of Science Fiction and multiple Hugo winner Lois McMaster Bujold. And finally out in January is an excellent hard science fiction novel. This is Frozen Orbit by Patrick Childs. During their long race to the Kuiper Belt, astronauts Jack Templeton and Tracy Keene unwind a decades-old mystery buried in the pages of a dead cosmonaut's journal. Challenging their own beliefs about the nature of humanity, they will soon confront the questions of existence itself. Frozen Orbit by Patrick Childs, Penrick's Progress by Lois McMaster Bujold, and Gunpowder and Embers by John Ringo, Casey Ezel, and Christopher L. Smith are now available at booksellers everywhere. This is part two of a two-part interview with Larry Correa. Part one is available on last week's podcast. One welcome Larry Correa to the podcast again. Hey, Larry. Hey, Tony, thanks for having me on. Well, Larry Correa is the creator of the Wall Street Journal and New York Times bestselling Monster Hunter series with first entry Monster Hunter International and the urban fantasy hardboiled adventure saga The Grim Noir Chronicles with Hard Magic is the first entry there and the saga of the Forgotten Warrior with Son of the Black Sword, which we are serializing and almost done with on the podcast right now. And the latest entry in that is House of Assassins. And I think he's working on the final, or the third book, not the final. He is an avid gun user and advocate who shot on a competitive level for many years. And some of the stories in this anthology that we're going to talk about have to do with that background. Before becoming a full-time writer, he was a military contract accountant and a small business accountant and manager. A lot of accounting in there, Larry. And he lives in Utah with his wife and family. But what we want to talk about today is target-rich environment, which is at booksellers everywhere. This is volume two. Stories from the creator of the Monster Hunter International series, 
and the uh, New York Times bestselling author. The other Mayberry thing you did was is is really cool because you both of you did um, characters from one of your series, one of your universes. I think he did Ledger. This one was neat. Okay, so what is, what this anthology was? Uh, the pitch for this anthology was it was uh, it's called Urban Allies, and it was different urban fantasy authors were asked to team up with each other and to do crossover stories. Uh, where basically like, well, you would take one of your characters and the other author would take one of his characters and then you would collaborate and throw a story where they would exist in the same universe and work together. And Jonathan is insanely talented, very talented guy. And so when I was looking at this list of authors who'd agree to be in this, Jonathan was one of them. I was like, holy crap, has anybody teamed with Jonathan yet? And the editor was like, no, it's Joe Nasty. And he's like, no, not yet. I was like, okay. So I, I emailed Jonathan. I was like, dude, you want to go in together on this? We'll collaborate. And he's like, yeah. And he goes, well, who would you like me to bring? I was like, you bring Joe Ledger. I love Joe Ledger. And Jonathan's like, done. I was like, who do you want me? He's like, Agent Franks. Because Jonathan loves Agent Franks. And if you remember my Monster Hunter Files anthology, he wrote an Agent Franks story for me in there. And so that was just a no-brainer. So I brought Agent Franks from the Monster Hunter universe, and he brought Joe Ledger from his uh, Joe Ledger series. And we threw them in together. And, oh, my gosh, this is such a crazy story. We did... uh, it's basically it's set in Iraq, and it's during the time frame where the ISIS terrorists were blowing up all the historical monuments and, and just destroying archaeological sites and being douchebags as they are, and how they had unearthed some ancient, ancient evil from uh, Mesopotamia and had cut a deal with it. And so basically it was weaponized telling that they were, they were taking uh, suicide bombers uh, and terrorists, and they were letting them being they're being possessed by demons, and then turning them loose. And so, what is this, in in the Joe Ledger series? He come he works for like a secret government agency, and I have in my series uh, where Agent Franks works for a secret government agency, no relation, and they're both working on the same operation and don't know it because it's top secret, and they run into each other uh, after after a truck bombing. And they see two guys go after the, the monsters together. And it's just really kind of a violent foray. <laughs> a lot of face shooting and people getting stabbed. Uh, no, that, that was a hoot. That was, that was, and the funny thing is we wrote it in like uh, two nights. Because what happens, we're both really busy writers. We both got tons of deadlines and tons of books. And uh, we, we'd agreed to this, and then we kind of forgot about it. Um. And then so the editor uh, reaches out to us, like, right before the deadline. He's like, hey, guys, I haven't seen anything yet. How's that going? And I'm like, crap, I haven't done anything. And Jonathan's like, I haven't done anything. I go, dude, what's your schedule like? And, and Jonathan's like, well, I, I got a deadline for this and that. I, I'm, I'm booked. He's like, all right, so what I'll do is I'll go through. I will write my scenes, like, super quick, get them to you tonight. You write your scenes in between mine. I'll, I'll put, like, a little, I think this should happen here. You write yours and kick it back to me. And he's like, okay, so that whole story we did was like 48 hours <laughs> from, from start to finish on that. It's almost like it was the fight itself in, in real time. Yeah. And it, the thing is, though, it came out really good. It's really raw and energetic, and I, I think it was a great story. Uh, plus, I just love writing Agent Franks. Talk a little bit about Franks, because, you know, he is quite an interesting character. <laughs> in your uh, Monster Hunter universe. I mean, but yeah, people reading this, they'll, they'll get think basically in the Monster Hunter universe, he's Frankenstein's monster. Uh, and that, except he's not emo. I mean, he hates the book. <laughs> he hates Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Despises that book. Because Franks is not emotional. He's not a pansy, is the way he looks at it. Franks just gets the job done. And what it was is, um, you know, because he was, he was made in Germany, uh, winds up joining the Hessians, becomes a mercenary, winds up in uh, America fighting against George Washington, um, cuts a deal with Benjamin Franklin, then <laughs> basically becomes America's first supernatural asset in, in the war against evil. <laughs> uh, and that's just the surface level of Frank's. Like, the actual Frank story goes so much deeper than that. But I got an entire novel, Monster Hunter Nemesis. That's one of my most popular books. Uh, but it's just the Frank story. 
and he's such a great character. Oh, Frank. But basically, Franks is just a giant eternal douchebag. <laughs> he's such. He just hates everything. Has no patience for anything. Everything to him is just like temporary and dumb. And humans are dumb and squishy. And <laughs> he's the. And just imagine that as a federal law enforcement agent. And uh, Franks just gets the job done, no matter what. I mean, he just, he never fails. He always gets the job done. He just does not fail a mission, no matter what it takes. And uh, such a such a cool character to write, though. I love writing Franks. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a, underneath the, the 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 gruff Franks is the Franks that does this. It, he has this this sort of pride in in doing his job or fulfilling his obligations. It's like because it's not all negative with Franks. I mean, he just he is he's impatient and dislikes everything, but he's also an ultimate professional. Because going back to before the dawn of time, literally, this is a warrior, and he very much is proud of what he does. He takes pride in his work, whatever that work may be. And uh, there's certain people that Franks has grudging respect for. Uh, and so that's one of the things we did in this story is he has grudging respect for Ledger after they work together. And Franks does not give respect much. But for him, that is actually a really big deal. Now, is there another, there's another Joe Ledger story or that universe, right? Is it Psychoval? Um, yeah, and so this one is one that was uh, it was an anthology Jonathan has put together for his universe. I was just straight up stories, and so he reached out to different authors he knew were fans of the books, and I've read most of them and I enjoyed them. And uh, he uh, asked me for a story, and uh, it was one of the things about. But you'll notice, like in these uh, these collections, like authors know each other, so we have that kind of this quid pro quo going on. Where, hey man, I'll do a story for you. You do a story for me. Yeah, sure, and. Um, so this one, I was like, okay. Uh, I was talking to Jonathan. I was like, okay, I want to write a story set in your universe. Like, what's what's something you haven't done yet? Like, like monsters or like, like what's some sort of thing you haven't visited in your urban fantasy series? And we're talking about it. And one of the things he hadn't he hadn't done that came up because of the whole Agent Frank's connection, who has now been a guest star. He's, he's shown up in cameos in, in Jonathan's series now. He said, I've never done uh, demonic possession, which is kind of a specialty of Frank's. Uh, and he's like, I've never done that. And I was like, really? Okay. So I did a, a story about that, and it was actually pretty awesome because I took a character who's a popular recurring character in the series, guy named Rudy, and he's a psychologist. He's like the team psychologist. So these special operators go on these crazy missions, and Rudy's the guy that kind of helps them unpack it, right? So I have him unpacking a mission in Mexico that went horribly wrong, and... Uh, and uh, things are not as they seem, and I don't want to give too much away, but it has actually turned out to be a horror story. It is, it is creepy as hell. It is a it is it is a seriously creepy story. Um, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I get to write horror once in a while. <laughs> yeah, it is, and it's another one of those uh, frame stories that 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 you seem to enjoy getting into the the tale, sort of from. Because this one, the entire story is done during a psychological evaluation. So it's a it's psych interview. It's so the, it's the it's a it's a psychologist interviewing the survivor of this operation. Is how it's set up, and uh, the entire thing is set. The soundtrack to this entire thing is David Bowie's "I'm Afraid of Americans," <laughs> and that sounds totally bizarre. But trust me, it's awesome, and it really is. I mean, when you when you read the entire thing, and I even mentioned that, I go through the lyrics of the song. Straight up, that is that song is a pivotal part of the story. Perhaps you could uh, listen to it while reading. Even you listened to it while writing, right? You were you were listening to Bowie during the writing process, I think. You. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. When you when 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 you read this story, you'll straight up, you, yeah, you yeah, you'll want to play the song. You're gonna want to play. You're gonna want to play the song, uh, and then and then read it. Yeah, you'll see. Don't want yeah. to give too much away. I like I like that. Yeah. Well, talk about the uh, the the War Machine uh, universe because this is something I'm not familiar with, and I um, found it interesting and and kind of cool. Something never I haven't seen from you uh, because I I just haven't worked on on those books. 
Um, the it's the instruments four, right? Is the yeah. Oh, this one's actually a full size. It's an Aldella, so it's like it's it's pretty good size. It's it's uh, one of the bigger stories in there. Um, the War Machine is a universe. It's kind of a background setting for a war game, a tabletop war game. And I'm a miniature gamer, and War Machine was actually my introduction to uh, mini mini gaming. Um, and uh, in the setting, there's this. It's a fantasy world. It's actually a really well fleshed out fantasy world. I really enjoy it. They've got a lot of fluffy goodness. I've been right, you know doing it for like 15 years now, 20 years now, whatever. And there's this race of like these desert invaders. They're the, the desert people. Uh, their magic was based on cruelty and torture and suffering powers their magic. Basically, it's like this really dark, um, heavy metal race, right? And they're kind of one of the bad guys. They're one of the factions you can play in the game, but they're kind of this bad guy faction. They've got these giant lumbering titan war monsters they drive into battle with dudes are out there whipping them you know getting them all enraged and they've got these like warlocks using the rage and bloodlust of their monsters to power their their uh their magic and they're they're this super warrior culture that that um they don't have they don't have an afterlife like in the, in their in their religious system like they just when scorn die they just go away they just go into the void right so the only way you can live on is to be such a badass that you're what's called exalted that's where they capture your soul when you die and they put them in like these basically uh war machines like these automatons to keep fighting that's the only way you can live on past death so their entire culture is this like bizarre death cult <laughs> exalting the baddest of the bad, right? And so the thing is, um, they asked me to write this story for them. They wanted to do an origin story of the leader of this faction. And by all descriptions, they're the bad guys. <laughs> they're bad dudes. And so it was, it was, for me, it was a challenge to write this big, long story about one of these people, but to also make them the hero of their story. Even though everything they do is based on, like, suffering and torture and all that. So it was, it was really a challenging project, but I think it came out fantastic because I think I really captured that. And I put all the stuff that made them who they are and why they're so prideful and why they're so proud and, and from their perspective. And they really are the good guys in their story. So they would, they yeah. would be insulted to call them good guys. Well, they're uh, they're very competent at their at their badness, the, and the ones that are the 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 most like <laughs> I don't know uh, dominant, uh, mean, and brutal, and and uncaring. <laughs> it's like a competition among them. Yeah, that's like that's like the character traits. It's like it's like they're just their their society is based upon uh, dominating others, and and like. It's like, hey, I own more slaves. I'm better than you. <laughs> you know, it's like I tortured more wildlife. <laughs> Yay for me! And uh, I, I mean, they straight up have titles like pain giver. <laughs> so you take all this, and, and, and as a writer, though, you take all this like super over the top stuff. And the challenge there is how, how do you make uh, how do you make this like uh, an appealing group that like readers. Are want gonna are gonna gonna run a route for them. So I tell the story of this girl uh, who grows up in the society in the shadow of her older brother because he's the heir, and uh, uh, I just I get into like the whole honor of their society and how they do the stuff and how, how she basically goes. It's a civil war between her and her brother because by because she lives to to the fullest the, the code of these people. Like she is the the living embodiment of their code. And her brother, to her, has violated that code, you know, because he's too skeezy. He's not straightforward enough. And so it's a civil war amongst these people. And by the end, I hope, you know, if I can make you root for these people, uh, then, I, then I have done my job as a writer. And so I, that one, when I was actually really proud of that one because that was one of those challenging things. But I think it came out really, really good. So... Yeah, that's why that's that's why this is in the collection. But yeah, I'm I'm proud of that one. 
Well, um, let's also mention your uh, collaboration with Steve uh, Diamond, which is Son of Fire, Son of Thunder. Um, oh, gosh, yeah. This one is one of the very first things I ever wrote. Uh, this is actually one of the first things I think I ever had published. Um, so this story is like 12 years old or 11 years old. Um, I think the only, at the time I wrote this, like the only thing I might have written has been like the first Monster Hunter. Uh, and so what it was is uh, I knew Steve. Uh, we had met because Steve was a book reviewer at the time, and he had reviewed Monster Hunter. So uh, Paul asked me to do this anthology, and me and Steve teamed up to do it. And it's the premise of this series was um, – uh, kind of a uh, an invasion story of transdimensional forces, and so me and Steve just decided to have a little fun with it. I wrote a character that I'm actually really proud of, and uh, basically the premise there is this guy's a U.S. Marine, but he had a vision from God when he was young, and you never know if this is like legit or not, where he knows exactly how he's going to die. He knows exactly the moment he's going to die. He knows how he's going to die. He knows down to the minute and the second he's going to die. Uh, and, because, and he's going to do, die, die fighting the apocalypse during, uh, you know, basically the end of the world. Uh, but because of, because of that, he's utterly fearless because he knows he can't die until then. And so he's a Marine, and he has done all this wild and crazy stuff, so everybody thinks he's got a death wish. I mean, all, all, uh, his unit thinks he's suicidal. Because uh, he's just too brave, he's just too stupid <laughs> in what he does, and so everybody thinks he's nuts. But in reality, it's because he knows he's going to fight. He's going to die fighting the devil at the last days. <laughs> and so, uh, and, and his, his, his business card later on, you know, Diego Santos, freelance exorcist. <laughs> so this guy yeah. just doesn't he's, give a crap. He's got a cool, but he's got a cool sort of superpower in that, in that he can, he does things like he can walk out and draw sniper fire, for instance. Yeah, he's like, oh, he's like, I'm fine. Everybody's like, you're gonna die, and he's like, I'm good. And so, so when we first meet him, he's being, once again, a psychological evaluation. He he's been uh, he's been you know retired not retired but he's been like pulled off and sent off to the psychological evaluation and I actually got a bunch of Marines I know to to read this to make sure I had all my stuff right so he's stationed at Quantico uh, basically just twiddling his thumbs um, because he can't you know do what he wants to do he's like he's like yeah I might as well go to war because I can't die and everybody's like no you could totally die and he's like oh, I'm fine I'm fine <laughs> and uh, so he's been sent to what they call it pet the dog. Because they have the dog there, so you could pet the dog and decompress while you talk to the psychiatrist. But he, Diego is totally fine. And then uh, uh, the, that's the Son of Thunder. And then Son of Fire was Steve's character, who was this FBI agent who Steve had already written one short story about this guy. But basically, he, he's like a phoenix. I mean, he comes—he literally comes back from the dead, is what it is. And so we're both writing these really like weird characters that kind of have their own like weird superpower at the apocalypse. Uh, and then there's an outbreak of evil at Quantico, uh, and then these guys deal with it. And so that that one I included because it, it was a lot of fun, and that we it was something that I wrote so early in my career before I really knew what I was doing. But still, by luck, I think it came out really really fun. Um, and then I, we mentioned earlier, I, so actually years later, um, I'm actually doing a book now with Steve. Uh, we're collaborating on a novel that's a. Uh, uh, like a really dark fairy tale world um, with with like really dark fairy tale magic, but think World War One Eastern Front uh, is the setting. Um, and it's kind of like a big sweeping uh, kind of epic fantasy uh, setting, but um, with, with, with like a like a Russians in the trenches kind of vibe to it. Very very cool, very dark. But Steve Steve actually went on to write horror novels, is what he does. And so uh, he has this very dark, dark flavor that he that he brings. So we're collaborating on that series. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Because you know, I know Steve somewhat. He he is a dark guy in his musings sometimes. Well, he's like one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet in person. But oh, the stuff absolutely. he writes, oh man, the stuff Steve writes is dark. I mean, he is a he is a grim, dark, scary like looming horror dread uh kind of like robert mccammon style writer uh but like 
yeah, so no, so we're doing a fantasy story together, and it's it's pretty bitching. <laughs> it really is cool. Uh, so very excited for that one. So right now he's yeah, working yeah. on working on the first pass of it still. But yeah, really really excited for that because the dude is That'll be crazy cool. talented. Yeah. Yeah, and he's read everything. Oh yeah, he's he's. He's read more books than any other one person that I know. Uh, he's read more different authors than anybody, anybody else I, I'm aware of. Because he spent all those years as a book reviewer. Dude's crazy talented, though. Like, like, so I'm really excited for him to get his solo career going. Yeah. There's, um, there's two more stories that we haven't talked about. One of them is uh, your orc story, uh, Reckoning Day. Um, might want to mention that briefly. That's fun. This is a little one. Right. Now, that one is it's it's a little Monster Hunter International Universe story, but it's from the perspective of Skippy, Chief of the Orcs, because uh, you know MHI has a tribe of orcs that has moved in. Uh, there's other MHI's orcs, um, but so it was the first time I did a story just straight up from their perspective about like their culture, and it's just funny as hell. Because Skippy. Skippy is awesome. <laughs> He's one of the most popular characters in the series, which is amazing because he hardly ever talks. He has, like, almost no dialogue, and, he, and his English is terrible. He doesn't speak English worth a damn, yet he's one of the most popular characters in the series. And so here we get to see him. Uh, Reckoning Day is, is the way I've established the Monster Hunter universe. So far, every orc we've met has had one thing that they are supremely skilled at. They have an amazing skill. It's like way beyond normal, you know, normal, like a human would not be able to reach this level of skill at that one thing. But they have a corresponding opposite skill that they're trash at. Um, And so that's just how orcs are. That's the nature of orc magic. All orcs have this. And Reckoning Day is when a young orc becomes an adult and and they demonstrate, they've discovered their, their, their skill that they're super good at and they demonstrate it before the tribe. Uh, and hopefully it's something useful, because sometimes it's just crap. <laughs> it's a story. It's just from Skippy's perspective as leader of the tribe. You know, it's it's just funny. It's just a funny little funny little vignette, basically. It's, it's I think it's probably the shortest story in, in the collection, but it's just funny as hell. Because Skippy is just awesome, and the and the orc, the coming of age orc, is actually a character named Shelley, who we have since seen. Uh, she reappears in the Monster Hunter series later on. She shows up in Monster Hunter Guardian, which is the most recent Monster Hunter novel. Uh, Shelly shows up briefly. Uh, and But we will see Shelly more in the series because she's just hilarious. She's very, very funny. And she's actually serving as Julie Shackleford's babysitter at one point. Um, but yeah, she, no, Shelly's cool. But yeah, that's, that's wrecking me. Oh, and then... Uh, oh, it's, oh, I know what the last story is then. A Murder of Manatees. Yes, Murder of Manatees. So one of the weirdest things that I do is the Tom Stranger series. And it's wildly popular. Um, it's been, uh, it originally was an Audible series. Uh, so it was, a, it was an Audible original, so I did it for audiobook. And it, on audio, it's narrated by Adam Baldwin, the actor who's just fantastic. Adam is so talented, and he loves doing these, and he has a lot of fun doing them. And you can tell he's having fun as he, as he reads these. Um, great com- great comedic actor. Um, but Tom Stranger is an interdimensional insurance agent. And Tom is the guy that when universes collide, when alternate realities clash, Tom Stranger is the guy that's there to fix everything and, and, and serve claims. Um, as long as you're insured, if your galaxy is not insured, then eh, you're just out of luck. But, but Tom is all about customer service. And, uh, it's a comedy series. It's goofy. It's silly. It's the silliest thing I write. And one of the reoccurring super popular characters in this universe is Wendell the Manatee. Wendell T. Manatee, who is the world's most eloquent manatee. He's a financial genius. He's got a billion. He's got like like a trillion followers on Twitter. <laughs> Wendell. Wendell the Manatee is insured, obviously, and he gets kidnapped. And so the story is about Wendell the Manatee getting kidnapped by things from another dimension, and Tom has to figure out who kidnapped Wendell and prevent the sea cow apocalypse because the sea cows 
are one of the most powerful forces in the galaxy, and they're very upset that they're that, that Wendell has been kidnapped. And so yeah. it, it is just goofy fun. Uh, and then the target-rich environment is where uh, where those are actually show up in print. Uh, so this is the only place you can find uh, Tom Stranger in print is in the target-rich environment collections. Because they started, they are um, uh, audiobooks that you did with audio, Audible and without Adam Baldwin uh, and, and such. And you and him are become characters in the story too, which is kind of cool. A uh, little meta. Yeah. Uh, it's very meta. So what it was is many years ago, Tom Stranger started out as a joke on my blog. It was just a, it was a silly, silly blog post back in like 2009 or 2008. It was a long time ago. Like I just barely started out as a writer and I got the, the name from Mike Cooper because we were driving down the street and there's a Tom Stanger insurance in Utah. And uh, we read it as Tom Stranger, and Mike was like, what's he sell? You know, interdimensional insurance? And I was like, ha that's funny. <laughs> and I wrote a blog post about it. And uh, But what it was is at the time, Adam Baldwin, I, who I hadn't met back then, uh, you know, I just knew him from Firefly and Chuck and this guy, this actor. But I knew that he was libertarian um, because he had written some political articles that were very well thought out, very articulate. Adam's actually a super smart guy. I mean, he usually plays tough guys in the movies, but he's actually very, very intelligent. His his dad was a college professor, um, so Adam's actually a very sharp dude, very intellectual. And so he'd written these articles uh, from a libertarian perspective about some topics, and I had just barely read them when I wrote this. And I was like, okay, so I needed a, the president of the United States in a different dimension, and I wanted it to be a libertarian, like have a libertarian president. So I had Adam Baldwin as president, and he, because he was president, and his party was the libertarian space cowboy revolution party so i put adam baldwin in and then years later i actually met him in person and uh really really super nice guy we're we're friends now and but i met him back then and i was like yeah by the way i've used you in a short story as yourself playing the president of the united states he's like oh okay that's that's weird (laughs) but he was cool then later on I introduced him to Audible, and then Audible wanted to make Tom Stranger into a book, and I was like, you guys are nuts. And so so the author and the narrator both appear in the in the stories, and um, only I make Adam super cool in the stories, and I'm a complete dork, right? So every time I show up, I am just like the biggest dork or loser in the thing. Uh, like, in fact, we just had Tom Stranger 3 uh, just barely came out, uh, a couple uh, about a month ago from Audible, and uh, in it, I have I show up again, and I just do not cover myself in glory. <laughs> it's it's you know, it's very self it's very um, uh, self depreciating whenever I show up in Tom Stranger. I, I I'm not I am not a heroic character. Let's put it that way. But yeah, no. So you have the narrator and the, and the and the writer of your. I I am uh, murder of manatees though. It's just honestly, it's goofy. It is so funny, and yeah. I'm actually really I'm I'm really pleased with these because it's hard to do humor like 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 sci-fi humor and have it be consistently funny. But Tom Stranger is all about you. Just got to have punchlines just constantly, and it's really a lot of it's it's a lot of fun. I love the I love writing. I thought I would. Uh... I would read uh, one of my favorite sentences in the story, which is uh, Tom talking about Wendell. Um, Tom says, Enough, Tom ordered. Buffy is correct. Manatees are known for two things, their physical responsibility and their unrelenting thirst for vengeance once provoked. Wendell is a hero to his herd. His kidnapping will surely rouse their fiery Florida man tempers. Their justice will be swift, unflinching, and indiscriminate. If we do not retrieve him quickly, the multiverse will face a murder of manatees. So it's the it's the sea cows that he's worried about rousing up, rising up, right? <laughs> Is that the? Oh gosh, yeah, they're and you guys said I, manatees don't speak English, right? In this series, they just make noises. They go and they, and then like um, there's always a translation provided, but basically, the the sea cows are the most deadly race in the galaxy, and. Uh, there's a, there's a great scene where somebody's talking about, well, aren't, aren't manatees just kind of like these gassy herbivores? 
And it's Mad Dog Mattis. You know, Jim Mattis is there, and he's like, no, that's what they want you to think. <laughs> <laughs> and it's basically so I have it set up in, like, like so on our planet, our reality, manatees are just very chill, right? In reality, they're total badasses. Um, and, like, 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 I have them floating around their, their suits of power armor. Um, <laughs> the one thing, in hand-to-hand combat, they don't have thumbs. They just have flippers. So, you know, you can use that to your advantage to escape. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, this all, and Wendell, Wendell came out. He's a popular character who has recurred now in many Bayon related things in and out of fiction. He's this uh, Wendell the Manatee is my official spokesman. He's my uh, he's my marketing guy, <laughs> my marketing manatee. Yeah, I, I have a, I have a, I have a human marketing person who's great, and he he actually exists in real life. <laughs> but Wendell is my 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 spokesman for whenever I need anything truly absurd. Because I have a cartoon manatee as my spokesman, he doesn't speak English, which makes it even better. Well, yeah, I had one short story. Where it was a Christmas. One of my this is not Grant, but it was one of my Christmas stories I did in my blog. That Wendell the manatee was the ghost of Christmas future. Uh, but the reason and it, the reason Wendell was the ghost of Christmas future was it was court mandated community service because of his fiery Florida man temper. <laughs> he had gotten in trouble with the law, and that was his community service was the ghost of Christmas future. Um. So you, you had, I had a time-traveling manatee you know, <laughs> explaining Christmas. <laughs> if you look at the back cover, if you look at the back cover of uh, Target Rich Environment 2, there's Wendell. Wendell is on the yes. back cover. The giant floating well, manatee. Uh, what is it? Talk about this cover. Um, have you talk about it a little bit, because it's something, isn't it? <laughs> okay, so this... All right, so Target Rich Environment 1, what it was, was they put me on the cover as an action hero, and Kurt Miller did beautiful artwork. And what it was was because I told Tony Weisskopf, hey, it seems like whenever Bayon does a collection of its author short stories, I always put the author on the cover. Like the, the David Drake, the stories inspired by David Drake, they had David on there as a Roman, uh, Roman senator. When they did Eric Flant, uh, they had Eric as a wizard, right? So, that, so it's kind of a Bayon thing. And so I was like, all right, got to be on there, and I think that would be fun. So they put me on as an action hero. Well, second one, uh, Tony hadn't decided what to do on the cover yet. And I was at a book signing in Dallas, Texas uh, with my wife. Uh, I was there in the audience, and I was talking in front of the crowd. And somebody had brought uh, – Tony Roberts had brought a stuffed Wendell the Manatee. Uh, and so they, they tossed it to me for me to pose and take a photo with the Wendell. And I struck like this Atlas Shrugged kind of pose where I had Wendell the Manatee overhead – well, my, my wife thought it was funny, so she jumps out of the audience and, and lays on the floor and grabbed onto my leg, all fawning like a like a Boris Vallejo or Frank Franzetta painting, right? And uh, somebody snapped a picture, and that went viral. It was all over the internet. Everybody thought it was hilarious. Well, Tony uh, Weisskopf saw that photo, and she's like, ah, that's the cover for the next one. <laughs> and so we did a Boris Vallejo, Frank Franzetta-style uh, Kurt Miller did the art once again, and it's me as a big badass barbarian. I look like God of War is what they painted me as, and my wife is there in a fur bikini, holding onto my leg, and that is actually my wife. Uh, <laughs> and, and we had to pose for this and take pictures for Kurt, and I had to take like 200 photos before Kurt was happy with me. Bridget took like one because she's she's actually attractive. And so Bridget just like looks up at the sky and we take one picture and Kurt's like, perfect. And then all my pictures, like Kurt was like, can you, can you like open your eyes? Can you like not squint? And I'm like, that's what I look like. Kurt. <laughs> but yeah, so me and Bridget are on the cover looking really, really buff. <laughs> it's, it's really super awesome. That's what it's, yeah, possibly the greatest cover in the history of books. <laughs> and it's uh, it's embossed on the hardcover. Oh gosh, it is. It's shiny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pop. Yeah, it's got that. Um, well, it's a great cover for a great book. Uh, it, it's it's. A, I'm really pleased with it. I'm really proud of how it turned out, and I I, I hope people enjoy it, and I hope people enjoy Volume One. 
it's just a chance for me to switch a bunch of different gears and, and play in a bunch of different genres and universes. I, I love doing this stuff. And so I hope the fans like it. Uh, the other thing I'm working on right now, I, I just should probably mention, I started working on this. I'm, I'm working on a collaboration right now. I'm doing a science fiction novel with an uh, author named John D. Brown. Um, and that will be out. I don't know if that's coming out next year or the year after, but I'm working on that one right now. Um, should be should be pretty cool. So yeah, that's that's what I've got going on, Tony. Cool. Well, the book that's out right now is Target Rich Environment, Volume 2, a collection of stories by Larry Correa. Uh, Larry, thanks so much for uh, talking to us about this, and uh, happy holidays. Sorry. All right, my pleasure. You have a good one. That was part two of a two-part interview with Larry Correa. Part one is available on last week's podcast. This is the audio presentation of The Seven Nipples of Molly Kitchen by D.J. Butler. The story is set in the world of gritty dust bowl magic that Dave Butler and Aaron Michael Ritchie created for their novel, The Cunning Man, out from Bain and the upcoming sequel to the book. This one is a lot of fun. The story is read by D.J. Butler with electric guitar by D.J. Butler, viola sounds by Christian Asplund, and additional music, sound design, editing, and mixing by Steve Ricks. And the recording is copyright 2020 by DJ Butler and used by permission. Without further ado, here is DJ Butler reading The Seven Nipples of Molly Kitchen. Seven Nipples of Molly Kitchen by D.J. Butler There are seven scattered all over the state, Hiram Woolley said. His voice echoed in the mine shaft. Looking over his shoulder, he saw the last light of the day splash pink over his Ford Model AA truck, which sat on the shoulder of the mountain. Below, the lights of Payson would be winking into life, though Hiram couldn't see them. Payson was a small enough town that many of those lights came from kerosene lanterns, though the beet processing plant and the city buildings were all electric. Then the shaft turned, and his truck disappeared from view. No breeze brushed Hiram's face, this was a mine with only one way out. Seven nipples? Rose Callahan asked. Seven mountain peaks named for her nipples. There's also a butte, but that strikes me as a stretch. There's a well, too. Some say 11 features in total, but on the maps I trust, I count seven. You gotta pick your maps real careful in this life. Yes, Hiram agreed, and be willing to switch maps when you find you've been following a bad one. This Molly Kitchen must have been a strange woman. Hmm. Hiram followed Rose down into the mine, listening for footfalls other than hers and his. She was large, though he would have said she was bulky rather than fat, and her step was light. The sound of sand and pebbles grinding under the soles of his red-wing harvesters was gigantic by contrast. The denim of his overalls, crusted with dust from the road and from the farm, scraped together as he walked with a noise like the sound of a cross-cut saw. The shaft's supports were rough-hewn logs rather than regular timbers or so-called cribs, Railroad ties cut short and stacked in pairs lying in alternating directions to form columns. This was the work of a solitary miner, or a small crew. The tunnel walls were irregular and the ceiling low, which suggested the same thing. No one would be driving a mule cart of coal through these tunnels. Given the valley's history, 
It had most likely been one man, solitary and half-crazed, during the silver boom. They passed one side tunnel after another, and Hiram reached into the bib pocket of his overalls at each, scattering a small handful of the pocket's contents in every opening. From time to time, he touched the Cairo amulet hanging around his neck. Who was she then? Rose asked. There's not much about her in the record, Hiram said. She's not alone in that. Records were a bit sketchy around here, 70 years ago. You went up to Salt Lake and poked around in their cupboards, did you? They were the only ones writing anything down back then. Shoshone just remembered things or told them to each other in songs. While she spoke, Hiram reached a hand into his pocket to cradle the heliotropius he carried. The green stone, streaked with blood-red stripes, warned him of deception. I have a friend at BY High, he said. He's a librarian, and I find there's little he can't ferret out for me in the way of facts on the record. And facts off the record? John Kitchen shows up clearly enough. Frontiersman type, like your John D. Lees and your Orrin Porter Rockwells, led an early expedition back before the Shoshones and the Utes had cleared out of the valleys and left them to the white settlers. And everywhere he went, he named a mountain peak after Molly. After her nipple. Well, I guess he found that her most memorable feature. Ain't that just like a man? Hiram heard rustling at his feet, shining the light of his electric torch deliberately ahead of him to keep his hands in obscurity. He threw grains down into the shadow. With a hiss and a scuffling sound, something unseen retreated and then fell silent. Rose stopped. Had she heard? I reckon that might be it, Hiram admitted. Men can be pretty predictable, especially that way. Though there's another possibility, too. He kept walking. After a moment's hesitation, Rose joined him. In the darkness of the mine, her bulk appeared to shift and twist underneath her calico dress. The missing children, Hiram said. What do you make of them? Well, you know how it is, Rose answered slowly. Any time anything happens that folk can't explain, it must have been a witch. And if it was a witch, then all the widows have to keep their heads down. Oh, it wasn't a witch, Hiram agreed. I suppose you've known your share of witches, Rose asked slyly. As many as the next fellow, Hiram admitted. More, I heard. Hiram felt a shiver in his spine. What did you hear then? Rose Callahan purred with satisfaction. You were sitting down from Salt Lake, but you ain't exactly a Salt Lake man, are you? I'm from Lehigh, Hiram said. I farm beets over there. Rose hissed. That ain't what I mean. I mean, you ain't the regular Sunday school type. I guess you better speak clearly, Mrs. Callahan. Sweat dripped into his eyes, and Hiram badly wanted to lift his fedora and mop the sweat with a handkerchief. Instead, he reached into the hip pocket of his overalls and put his hand on the cold butt of his pistol. The hairs in the back of his neck stood up. Where were the rest of the creatures? Were they behind him, about to pounce? Rose didn't stop walking. Your grandma was a witch. Payson ain't so far away from Lehigh that there ain't a few around here who'd heard of her in her day. Especially once the beet plant got built and Payson started taking all of Lehi's beets. She was a cunning woman. Hiram blinked, sweat stinging his eyes. She knew herbs, some German prayers, and she could read the almanac. And I heard tell you're a cunning man yourself. Hiram grunted without commitment. Who had she been talking to? I'm willing to try whatever does the job. Stone peeping? Rod work? A heavenly letter? Whatever gets the task done, Hiram repeated, and doesn't compromise my soul. It was Rose's turn to grunt, a contented sound that might have come from a sow. We're almost there. What were you doing so far down the mine that you found the body? Hiram asked, knowing the answer would be a lie. Lost one of my dogs, she said, followed it down here, and the poor creature came across the dead child. The heliotropius stung Hiram's thigh, a sensation like being pinched by someone with strong fingers. They walked a few steps in silence. If it ain't a witch, Rose said, what do you think killed those children? You don't agree with the fellow from the Star Courier, the one who thinks it was an accident. 
No accident drains a body entirely of blood like that. A vampire, then? Hiram forced himself to chuckle. Have you read Stoker's novel? Do you imagine there might be a Transylvanian nobleman wandering around in Utah Valley looking for sanatorium patients to enslave? Rose laughed lightly. <laughs> and what? An illness? That would be a horrible abomination of an illness to drain so much blood out of a child. It would be an abomination, Hiram agreed. I think something drank the blood from those children, but not a vampire. A monster. Something awful, something without a name. You ain't much of a wizard if you can't name your foe. I didn't say I was a wizard. Hiram had a name to give his foe, but he wasn't quite ready to share it. I'm just a cunning man, more of a beet farmer than anything else, and I deliver groceries to people who have lost their jobs. I dig out collapsed ditches, settle fights over irrigation times, things like that. You help the poor. I try to help them. Widows and orphans, pure religion and undefiled. You've read your Bible. Ain't everyone? And you try to solve the mysterious deaths of children in a small farming town. The way I see it, Hiram said, those children were poor in life, but they're even poorer now. I have no one to hear their story, no one who would even believe how they died. If nothing else, I can do them this last service. Even if I never really figure out what killed them, even if I can't stop the monster from killing again, I can do them the service of believing and of trying to help. Sad. Rose Callahan didn't sound the slightest bit troubled. We almost there? Almost. Bear with this fat old woman a little longer, Salt Lake City man. Another possibility, Hiram said, is that John Kitchen was trying to give a warning. What's that? By naming those mountain peaks the way he did. What kind of warning does a man give by naming mountain peaks after his wife's breasts? Some say it wasn't his wife, Hiram said. No record as such. Some remember it was his betrothed. But Molly Kitchen left no birth certificate and no death certificate. No record of baptism or marriage, nothing. Maybe they never married. Maybe not, Hiram allowed. Maybe they were just poor. Records are especially bad where poor folk are concerned. True, Hiram said. Or maybe she ate him. Rose laughed, a sharp edge that shaded into a cackle. <laughs> That's a dark joke, cunning man. The heliotropius didn't pinch Hiram, but it trembled anxiously. I see it like this, Hiram said. This very mountain was the first. It was where John started, and somehow he got the right to put a name on the map for it. Then as he traveled, he left a string of Molly's nipples behind him. Seven of them all told, just counting the mountains, but it started here. He was warning us about something, and we missed it. We missed it for seventy years and more. Rose Callahan snorted. Warning us his bride was deformed? Maybe that's why he ran off and joined Brigham's expedition. Maybe he was trying to get away, Hiram agreed. His end in the record is a bit mysterious, too, but folks around Payson agree he came back, and he died here. Of sickness, some say, or accident. Some remember that the death was a surprise and a bit mysterious. Folks will repeat all kinds of nonsense. Seventy years isn't all that long. There's old folks in the valley who were alive then, even old folks who were adults when John Kitchen came back from his journey. And you think Molly Kitchen killed him? No. He meant it. She was toying with him now, trying to draw out what he'd learned. Perhaps she wanted to find out who else knew and whether she should strike at his son Michael in the boarding house back in town. He could try to take her now, only he hadn't accounted for them all. If she wanted to draw him deeper into the mine, there might be more of the beasts. No, he said again, I don't think Molly Kitchen killed her husband. And I don't think she killed any of the other people who have died in these hills since, missing without trace or found drained of blood. Now what do you think it was? Monsters, Hiram said. Things beyond human ken. Things that have no name. Things about which nothing is written in any of our books. That sounds terrifying. Her voice was cold and remote and lonely.
Hiram felt a pang in his heart and swallowed it. What had her life been like all these years with such a dark secret? All these years with no one to tell it to? And had she told John Kitchen before he died? Did she mourn his death still, the death of her last companion? He heard a slithering in the darkness. He almost missed it, distracted by his strangled feelings of compassion for Molly Kitchen. But he was alert enough to shine the light on ahead and throw a handful of crystals into the crack from whence the slithering sound emanated. We're here, Rose Callahan said. The tunnel had ended in a sudden wall, no chamber as such, but just a termination of the mine shaft. There's no body, Molly, Hiram said. If she noticed his use of her name, she showed no sign. There will be. Hiram shone the light on the calico that sheathed Molly Kitchen's torso and shuffled his feet as if uneasy. The silver beam hid the action of his other hand, scattering crystals on the dirt, and his red wings masked the sound. What's it like? he asked. I don't kill them, she said. I guess that. I believe you, and I don't mean what's it like to kill. I mean, what's it like to be alone? With them. They don't talk, she said, after a brief pause. And who would I tell about them? Who would believe it other than you? Who could bear the knowledge? Hiram's shoulders felt heavy. He nodded. Do you want to see them? She offered. He didn't. He felt ill. He wanted to flood the entire shaft with gasoline and drop a match. But he nodded. She undid the buttons down the front of her dress. Responding to the touch of her fingers, the fabric moved as if it were itself a living thing. Or as if there were other creatures moving beneath it. She opened her dress. I count two, Hiram said. They clung to her body. Jaws clamped fiercely onto her flesh, long and red like serpents with a single powerful pair of legs just behind their skulls. The skulls were disturbingly human in shape, like the skulls of newborn children. If the creatures had skin, Hiram couldn't see it. They seemed to be composed entirely of blood, not clotted blood, but red living blood holding itself together in this shape by some sorcery so foul, Hiram could scarcely imagine it. And he could not countenance its survival. He destroyed two, Molly said. She wasn't, after all, a fat woman. Her face was swollen and puffy. But in this light, it looked like the swelling of rot and corruption. Her body was skeletal. With fire. It wasn't just me, Hiram said, and then regretted it. It had been Michael who had sloshed gasoline on the two feeding monsters and ignited them. Still trying to protect his son, Hiram had told the boy he had killed a couple of large reptiles, Gila monsters perhaps, or some desert lizard that had not yet been added to the catalog. But you didn't bring your gas can down here, did you, Salt Lake City man? No. Hiram felt a deep sense of sorrow and pity. He must not let it stay his hand. Were they actual nipples once? Molly nodded. I was born with them. Mere nubs of flesh, no use to me any more than yours serve you. I never had a natural child. Just these queer body memories of an ancient time and a more ancient pact. What pact? Hiram asked. My family. Molly didn't volunteer any more. What family is that? Hiram pressed. Were these same monsters killing elsewhere, clinging to the grotesque form of some cousin of Molly's? And where would that be? Hiram had no idea where Molly came from or who her kin were. Molly said nothing. Hiram tried another approach. And you renewed the pact. They came to me, Molly said. It was before I knew John and I had two of them, before he and I were engaged to be married. And seven, by the time of our wedding night, I tried to keep them from him. I, I thought I had. Until he published his warning to the whole world. I had to kill him. They had to kill him. My only other choice was to flee into the wilderness and to live the life of a monster. Can you understand that, cunning man? Hiram sighed. You nursed them. It isn't milk. It's blood, Hiram said. The two monsters on Molly's body unlatched their mouths from their hostess and glared at Hiram, gripping Molly's thigh in her upper arm. Hiram saw nothing that any longer resembled a human nipple but seven oozing bloody sores. 
Two of them rested on Molly's chest where an ordinary woman's nipples would have been. He stepped back, scattered more of the crystals on the ground. They only had four legs, but was it possible that the monsters could jump, or worse, fly? They're made of blood. He hoped fervently he was right. Are they? Molly furrowed her thinning eyebrows and glared at Hiram. We'll find out, he said. The creatures leaped from Molly's body toward Hiram. They landed on the dry dirt, where Hiram had scattered the two handfuls of rock salt. The monsters shrieked in pain. Their forward momentum died, and they flopped on the salt and sand like caught fish on the bank of a lake. No! Molly's face curled into a fist as she wailed. Was she dangerous? Hiram had to worry about her later. He shot a hand into his other hip pocket and grabbed the large glass bottle of Vijon Hospital brand solution of hydrogen peroxide. Fumbling, he lost the cap. Molly leaped at him over her foul offspring. He sloshed peroxide on both the monsters, spilling too much in his efforts but hitting both of them. They erupted into bubbles and pink fuzz, spattering blood in all directions. Tiny bloody jaws opened and tiny claws clenched and unclenched as they sank into the pink foam and disappeared. Molly crashed into Hyrule. He fell down under the surprising force of her charge. She was much heavier than she looked, as if her bones were plated with lead. He dropped the Vijon solution and lost sight of it. He kicked, the flashlight spinning away into darkness, and the bottom of the tunnel became a funhouse nightmare of flashing light, shrieking spittle, and nails clawing into his forearm. Don't! he bellowed. She didn't slow down, and then the same weight that had knocked him prone grabbed Hiram around the throat and squeezed. She bore down on top of him, howling and reeking of blood. In the darkness, he couldn't see her face. But he found the pistol in his pocket. You murdered my children, cunning man! He jerked the weapon out and squeezed the trigger. Click. Of course, the hammer had been on an empty chamber for safety. Molly, he shouted one last time. Molly Kitchen sank her teeth into his neck. He squeezed again and this time was rewarded with a kick and a bang and the infernal stink of gunpowder. Molly slumped onto him still. Hiram's ears rang. He stood and found the light. Checking, he found the bloody puddles that were all that remained of Molly Kitchen's two monster children. He slapped a hand to his neck and it came away red as well, but not so much so that he had to worry about bleeding to death on the spot. He checked Molly. Her body sagged like a water skin with a bullet hole in it, blood pouring out onto the sand. He stared as the last of the gore exited, leaving behind a slack husk with facial features, rucked about a distorted skeleton. Dead, she appeared to have no muscles or viscera, skin, bones, and blood. That was all that had remained of Molly Kitchen. Had she been a bright young child once? Had she been quiet and watchful like Michael? He could still see the seven nipples like seven wounds. I'm sorry. Hiram tried not to think of what he was feeling. He found the peroxide bottle on its side with some solution still in it. Slowly he trudged back up the mine shaft. At each side passage or hollow where he'd heard movement and responded by throwing down salt, he found another of the blood beasts trembling in pain on the bed of white crystal. He poured down a little Vijon on each monster, bursting each in turn. He patiently watched them dissolve into nothing underneath the firm light of his electric torch, to be certain nothing had survived. At the mouth of the mine, a cool breeze blew over his double A. He brought the gas can down into the shaft, along with a box of kitchen matches and a long-handled shovel. How must it have felt to be Molly Kitchen, separated by her gruesome nature, by the realization in her body of what she had called the ancient pact, and severed from her husband by the same? A lonely woman would talk to herself. Eventually, she would talk to the monsters clinging to her flesh, and decide they were her children. When had Molly Kitchen become a monster herself? He dug a shallow trench in the ground at the bottom of the shaft and laid Molly in it. Staring down at the distorted sack of skin, he tried to think of words to say. At the end, all he could do was touch the Saturn ring on his finger, the dream-provoking charm that had brought him to Molly, and repeat, I'm sorry. He doused her with gasoline, then burned her, then covered the ashes with dirt. He burned the bloodstains that had once been her monstrous children for good measure. Then he stood in the night breeze, leaning against the double A and staring down at the lights of Payson. He would tell Michael nothing, of course. They would drive together back to Lehigh in the morning, and they would talk only of the irrigation ditch they dug out together. This was knowledge of the sort one kept from the young. The sky was pale blue over the eastern mountains before he finally started the car to drive back. Hey, thanks for listening. 
Um, this is uh, uh, Dave, uh, the author, actually doing the reading. And uh, if you listen this far, I just want to let you know that uh, this is uh, the first published short story about a character named Hiram Woolley, who has since been published in other short stories, but also in novel form. So if you like the short story, uh, check out the novel The Cunning Man, co-written by me, DJ Butler, and by Aaron Michael Ritchie. Thank you very much. That was an audio presentation of The Seven Nipples of Molly Kitchen, a story of the Cunning Man series by D.J. Butler. The story was read by D.J. Butler with electric guitar by D.J. Butler, viola sounds by Christian Aspland, and additional music sound design, editing, and mixing by Steve Ricks. And the recording is copyright 2020 by D.J. Butler, used by permission. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to D.J. Butler and to podcasting composer Ruth Judkowitz, and the thunderous clap of an army of iron giant's applause, along with the fiery sneeze of relief from an enormous lizard who is allergic to Tokyo and really appreciates the ability to stay at the bottom of the bay and eat blowfish, plus thanks and praise to Larry Correa, author of Target Rich Environment, Volume 2. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 